1: It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before we get started with today's hockey PDO cast, I want to give some quick love to our sponsor, SeatGeek. If you've never used it before, it's as good a time as any to start considering the playoff season is just around the corner. SeaGeek is a service which makes buying and selling tickets easier than it's ever been before. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one handy location for you, even going so far as to ensure that you're getting optimal value by alerting you once the prices fall. The best part of it all is that they don't try to sneak in those random fees at the checkout, which means that you know exactly what you're paying for when you're choosing your tickets. SeatGeek's providing my listeners with a $20 rebate off their first purchase today, and all you've got to do is follow a few easy steps. Just download the free SeatGeek app, then go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and type in PDO. Once you've done that, SeatGeek will send you your $20 rebate. Download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code PDO, and you can start saving yourself a bunch of time, effort, and money as you get your hands on whichever tickets your heart desires today. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitri Filipovich, and joining me is uh, our favorite, the, the official color commentator of the Hockey PDO Cast. It's, uh, it's Mike Johnson. <laughs> Mike, what's going on, man?
0: Not too much. I just wonder who I'm up against, because if I'm the official one, there can't be too many other people in the running for
1: <laughs> Well, we've had Ray Ferraro and Jamie <laughs> McLennan on, so you know, you're in some prestigious company there.
0: That's that's some good company for sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, Okay. So I thought we'd be interesting if we did a little mailbag type show, mostly because, I don't know, around this time of the year, it's it's pretty dry on material while we kind of wait for the seating to shake out and the playoffs to start. And our listeners are pretty smart and creative and they came through for us. So uh, are you cool with kind of answering some of these Twitter questions that we solicited from them? For sure. Let's go. Cool. Okay, so from Dan Lanthier to start us off, he asks, uh, what's Pittsburgh's playoff outlook with and without Malkin? So, I don't know, what do you think of their road ahead in terms of how that Metro division is shaking out right now? Because I think that the general timeline is Malkin could potentially be back for a second-round series, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think how well they've played um, down the stretch here since Mike Sullivan has taken over really... Um, And not just the points that they've won and and the fact that Sidney Crosby has been lights out, best offensive player in the game again. Um, But but I think how they have a little bit more structure to their game, Uh, they're a far better possession team. Uh, They're not just relying on terrific goaltending or or amazing individual plays to to win games. They have a, a plan in place that allows them to, even when a guy like Malkin does go down, to, to stay with the program and, and be very successful um, in games. So, uh, you know, it looks like they're going to probably get the three seed mm-hmm. um, and and play the New York Rangers in the first round. I think home ice means a lot in that series. I think New York is so good at home that um, if Pittsburgh is, is starts on the road, it would be a much tougher, tougher first-round matchup. But I think they absolutely are capable and would not be a shocking upset if they win the first round. Uh, and head into likely Washington in the second, um, even without Genie Malkin. I think what we've seen in the last little while is, well, one, Crosby's incredible, <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> and uh, he's really has shaken off the malaise that, that was in his game in the first 20 or so of the season. And the other part of it is that I think we have seen that Phil Castle, for as great a talent as he is, he's a guy that, maybe plays better with players that don't demand the puck as much as Malkin and Mm Crosby. I think that Kessel, much like Tyler Bozak, Nick Benino, guys who want to defer the puck to him, want to give him the puck and let him attack with speed through the neutral zone, do the heavy lifting, don't don't make him worry about necessarily back-checking or defensive assignments, but blow the zone, create speed through the neutral zone and attack. That's when he's at his most effective. When he gets with players who are equally or more talented than he is, a guy like Crosby, a guy like Malkin, they, the they want the puck on their stick across the blue line, and that puts Phil in a different spot where he's primarily a shooter, and he's not that kind of guy who just floats around, waits for a pass, and then gets it away, like maybe James Neal, who's mm. an excellent goal scorer, but he doesn't really want the puck. He just wants to shoot it. Right. Phil wants the puck before he shoots it, and uh, maybe they found a really good fit there with Hagelin and Benito down the stretch. So they are they're a dangerous team. Um, you know, I think Washington is still the heads and tails favorite in the east but to see the penguins win the first round and get up against Washington the second round wouldn't be a surprise at all
1: well, yeah that'd be that's an interesting point I wonder uh if he's kind of making too much money and he's and he's regarded too highly if Malkin comes back for them to actually keep Kessel on, on maybe a <laughs> third line with Haglin and Bonino but I mean that'd be do make them so frightening to play against if you know that there's three lines they can roll they can all just equally score on you right
0: it, it's a it's a fascinating decision for Mike Selva to have to make, because you're right. I mean, at some point, they will run out of quality wingers to pull it with a guy like Evgeny Malkin. Right. Malkin, of course, is good enough to do a lot on his own, but, you know, is he playing with, what, Eric Fair or one of the young guys, Russ mm. Bennett, mm. Unackel? I mean, those, those are not traditionally top six elite-level wingers for Evgeny Malkin, but... The one luxury they have, though, is that if he is coming off of injury and he hasn't played for whatever it's going to be, four or six weeks, um, maybe it's a little easier to say, listen, we're rolling, we're going to slide you in, break you in slowly, so just you can play with these guys for now, get you out the specialty team, play the power play, and see what happens. Because if that line of Benino, Kessel, and Hagelin is playing like they are now and they, they carry it forward, then I don't think you can justify breaking it up even for Evgeny Malkin in the playoffs. Regular season, yes, but not in the playoffs.
1: Yeah, well that Rangers matchup is fascinating for me because obviously you never really want to play against Henrik Lundqvist. He could easily just be a one-man show and just steal the series for the Rangers, but I just like forecasting mm-hmm. that matchup for them. That Penguins speed, which is remarkable to me how they've on the fly made themselves such a faster, younger team whereas the teams from past years, where that year most notably where they acquired a and, and Brendan Morrow and and Douglas Murray and they were just so slow and they've kind of adjusted <laughs> on the fly to this new NHL style style of play, and and that Rangers blue line, I feel like they really just give them fits, so I'm kind of wondering if that's the the ideal matchup for them in the first round.
0: It might, and if you saw the game, and it was a good one a couple nights ago where where Crosby won the game in overtime on the Sunday, Mm -hmm. um, you saw several examples of the Penguins forwards, especially that line with Hagelin and and Kessel roasting the Rangers defensively, just flying by them. Um, leaving them standing still, and they're not just you know the usual suspects where people say, well, maybe Dan Girardi or Mark Stahl, but Ryan McDonough was getting was getting walked, and Klein was getting walked. So yeah, I think the speed game of the Penguins would give any team trouble, but maybe the Rangers specifically, as their decor has gotten slower quickly. Uh, you mix in Yandel and Dan Boyle, two other guys that are not the fleetest afoot it could be a tough matchup for the Rangers
1: yeah All right. let's move on Uh, we got a question here from Slaw who asks are the St. Louis Blues a sleeper this year can they get some love from the PDO cast um I uh, uh, They're not a sleeper. They're wide awake. <laughs> well, no, I think he's asking because uh, I, I did a podcast recently with Jonathan Willis where we sort of rank the, the contenders um, and we left the Blues sort of on the periphery, just behind the, the Ducks mm-hmm. and the Kings and the Blackhawks out west. And I, I still think that's fair. I mean, just based on kind of recent history yeah. and, and what we've seen this year, the Blues have an uphill climb in front of them. But uh, I don't know, like, what, what do you make of them? Because the this year has been so weird for them with the injuries and kind of... Of the uncertainty, if they were going to keep Shattenkirk or try and extract value and trade him and back as an impending free agent. It seems like they were a little bit all over the place, but maybe it's just a, a testament to Ken Hitchcock that he's kind of kept them together throughout it all.
0: It is. I mean, say what you want about Ken Hitchcock, and he's not everybody's favorite coach, even the players that play for him, but he is an excellent coach. Yep. And he kept that team focused and gaining points despite many long term injuries to keep players. Uh, so I don't think they're a sleeper at all, and if you ask me, I would say especially if they win the division. They're currently tied with Dallas. They don't have the tiebreaker, but if they win the division and can avoid Chicago in the first round, um, I think that St. Louis comes out of essential. I think St. Louis beats Chicago this year. Mm. I think that this is their year. Um, Alex Steen's going to be back tonight. They're finally getting healthy. I think maybe the emergence of, you know, pareco has been a really nice find. Edmonton... Maybe to a lesser extent, but a little size that goes with speed that can perhaps play against the high-end guys in Chicago a bit better and limit what they can do. And Chicago, I think, just with age and fatigue, and you never want to discount the champs and all that they've done. But I think they might be. This might be the year. It's so hard to do it year after year after year, and they have. Uh, I think St. Louis is right there, an equal co-favorite to come out of the West of anyone, Chicago, LA, Anaheim, anyone, um, especially if they can win the division, because that means they'll only have to get through one really high-end team um, before they get, you know, to the conference final. So uh, I like them. The biggest question for them is, what are you doing net? I, mm-hmm. I mean, like, and I, Jake Allen was their guy. They right. put him in there last year, acknowledging that he didn't have enough as much experience, but that was part of his growing process because he's going to be there several years, you got Brian Elliott right now, who's got three shutouts in a row. He's got a league lead in goals against and state percentage. Um, I think after about five years in St. Louis, where every year they seem to go out and try to find a better goalie than Brian Elliott, <laughs> I think this is the year they realize that maybe he is the better goalie and just let him start. He's got the experience. He's been through a lot of different things in his career. And if they get any kind of decent goaltending, the kind of goaltender that Elliott has played all year... Uh, I think they are—they uh, are not a dark horse at all. They—they are—they are a favorite to to do exceptionally well in the playoffs. I know they've had failures in years past. I know they've come up short, but I just think this year—this year will be the year. I think—I think that they are very likely to, or uh, as likely as anyone to to advance through that central.
1: Yeah, that's fair. You know, it's funny. uh, You were saying earlier, every every time I bring up Hitchcock's name to any former player, there's always the same reaction. It's always a, a slight little pause. (laughs) And then you go say what you will Uh, about Ken Hitchcock. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know He's listen, he's hard on guys. He, he can be a little crabby to be around when things aren't going well. Um, he kind of has a, a whiny nature, you've got to do a lot of video, a lot of correction, so it it it, it wears on you, but the saving grace is that you win, and mm-hmm. you're willing to put up with just about anything when you win. Um, but I do think, though, if they if they don't, if they do flame out in the first round again, or maybe even the second, uh, I, I think that will probably be it for Ken Hitchcock in, in St. Louis. And that's not saying he hasn't done a fantastic job, because he has. I just think he is definitely a guy with a shelf life and you probably can't have his voice in your ear for more than
1: four or five years. So, so do you think that um, he's more likely to be fired if the Blues have an early exit than say Bruce Boudreaux if the Ducks go out in the first or second round?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. I would. Uh, wow,
1: I think it's if probably both right lose up the there. First right? Round, yeah. I
0: think they, I think they, <laughs> they both probably get let go. Yeah. I mean, really, um, but I think Bruce Boudreaux deserves a lot of credit for what he's done this year in Anaheim. Uh, his his critics in years past would suggest that he's a very good personality coach, maybe a bit of a good psychologist, but not a really good technical Mm -hmm. X and O's guy. But for him to uh, switch gears midstream with Anaheim this year and get them to change their forecheck, their neutral zone, and maybe more importantly, their mindset about how they go about trying to win games, not trying to win them 4-3, but to try to win 2-1 after two months of not scoring, and getting the team to buy in and now maybe all the way back to winning their division. Uh, I think there's a lot of credit. He is one of the best regular season coaches of all time. It's mm. hard to say that, but his, his numbers bear it out. Right. He is. I think he has the best winning percentage of any coach ever, mm. um, for for the regular season. So, uh, but two things you have to realize with An- with Anaheim, that may be a bit different is that, um, they're not a team that just throws around the money. So the, the prospect of having to pay people, that don't work there is not uh, as palatable to the Ducks as some of the other organizations that just make change and don't worry about whatever million dollars that might be on the books for their coaching staff. Right. So that, that's something to consider. And, uh, and, and Anaheim has so many changes coming this summer. When you think about Anderson, Raquel, Lindholm, and Batten, all our RFAs all stand to increase their salary by $4 million, probably minimum. Each one of them, you're talking you million, know, $20 million in new payroll with those four guys alone, um, plus all their unrestricted guys. That team's going to look different. They're going to have to make some tough decisions, some trades of quality players to just get under the cap or get to their internal budget. And um, this will be the last year that that Ducks team, as it currently, currently looks, will be together.
1: Mm, yeah, that's fair. Would, which would be a shame if they kind of had to blow it up on the fly because they've been so successful and well, have just, just, just missed that hurdle by a little bit.
0: And I think they, listen, I like Kevin Bieksa. He mm-hmm. went we to went the same alma mater. Right. I'm not sure why you extended Kevin Bieksa. I know mm-hmm. you wanted to change the look and you needed a veteran guy, but you had Theodore, Chase Theodore. You have Brandon Montour in the minors. Mm-hmm. You knew you were going to have to pay Lindholm and Bottin in. They have to get rid of a Lindholm, Botten or maybe even a Camp Fowler because they have two more years of Kevin Bieksa. Yeah. And I like Kevin Bieksa. Um That's not good planning, is it? No. Nope. To put those guys at risk. And their age, because you're on the hook for $4 million to Kevin Bieksa, um, or Clayton Stoner, for that matter. Um, yeah, they they had themselves all set up. And John Gibson is on a very friendly contract, so I think they probably can trade Freddie Anderson to any number of teams and get a pretty decent return. That won't be hard to do. And because they have Gibson, they'll be able to do it and, and not probably take a step back. But if they lose one of those good young defensemen um, – that seems like something they could have avoided with maybe a little bit better future planning.
1: Yeah yeah for sure Uh, okay let's move on I got a question here from Declan who asks what's the biggest challenge of incorporating analytics into the broadcast and I think that this is a pretty topical discussion for us to have because I saw um, Ray Ferraro the aforementioned Ray Ferraro arguing with people on Twitter yesterday about this very thing where he was essentially making the point that he understands and he recognizes the numbers but at the same time they numb things for him a little bit and he'd rather just kind of talk about what he's seeing on the ice while he's calling the game which is perfectly understandable that is his job description but I'm kind of wondering because I think you do a pretty good job of incorporating all of these sort of means of analysis so uh, what do you th- what do you think the biggest challenge of getting that message across to people who are watching at home is?
0: Uh, it's a good question and it's one we we talk about and, and, and I think about um, because I'm maybe somewhat more open to the numbers. I, I am a number guy and uh, I like my math and I, I enjoy looking into it. A right. couple things of the challenge. One, um, the verbiage and maybe some of the things you're talking about is not something that is second nature to all hockey fans. And while it's great you want to, and you want to educate and open the eyes and maybe teach people something they don't know, um, some of the terminology and, and just the familiarity is not there with what you might be talking about, which which can make it difficult if people don't really understand instinctively. If I want to talk about breakouts or even a goal assist, plus assists, plus minus, whatever it might be, things, at least people know what they are. You don't have to worry about, one thing, understanding what the numbers mean, but just even understanding what you're talking about. So that's a challenge. Two, I not everyone loves seeing numbers mm, yeah. and, and and processing numbers while watching sports. So um, to do, you, you have to find a way to do it where the numbers, as Ray said, don't kind of numb the message. That the message comes shining through, and the numbers, if you're using them, support the point you're making, but the point is easier to understand than staring at a graph with 12, a graphic with 12 numbers on them. Right. So, um, and then, and then doing all that in my job or Ray's job during the game to do that in 10 to 15 seconds can be challenging. If you're in the studio in intermission, you have a minute and a half. It's a little easier, but to do it in 10 or 15 seconds um, because the game's about to start again and you don't, you can't be jabbering on while somebody's about to go score a goal. Um, all those things make it challenging. So there's, there's moments where you have ideas and you have numbers or thoughts and 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 some of the analytical stuff in your mind, but it, it's not always easy to get it in, even when it, even when it applies due to the timing, um, the time constraint that, that we're under.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, well, that makes sense. I think the verbiage definitely is a, is a good point where it would be much better suited kind of mes- getting that message across if they had better, more common sense names, right? Like I think even uh, like yeah. PDO, for yeah. example, trying to explain to someone who's never heard of it before what PDO is, is, is yeah. such an exhaustive process where you're like, well, actually it doesn't, it's not an acronym. It doesn't really stand for anything. It's, uh,
0: you <laughs> know, <laughs> you're right. You're right. And and, and maybe in enough years, you, know, you can keep calling it PDO, and in five years, maybe everyone will be like, yeah, PDO, same percentage, right. shooting percentage. It's all good. Right. We get it. Um, but until that becomes common knowledge, um, then you have to say PDO, or you have to say that is the shooting percentage and say percentage added together. whatever you want. You have to explain what it is. You need mm-hmm. a glossary on a graphic, which is tough to do during a game. So, um, yeah, I try to... You know what? But you can find ways to... Uh, you can find ones that fit. I, I, I look, we have, a, we have a company that provides us uh, at Sportsnet with um, little analytical um, notes uh, mm-hmm. about the games we're covering and, and, you, and you scour that and you see which ones, they, which ones can make sense and not only make sense, but make sense to be put in a broadcast where people can appreciate and say, oh, okay, that adds to what I'm seeing on the ice. That explains what's happening on the ice. That why is Martin Marincin a favorite of Mike Babcock? Because he has zero goals. I don't get it. Mm. And then you, have, you show what Mike Babcock is seeing, and then you show the numbers that back up. What Mike Babcock is seeing and why he is better than maybe you, at first blush, might give him. And then it maybe adds to the context of the game. And, and so that's what I try to do when I, when I go to prepare for a game
1: okay well so a follow-up from from myself actually now that you were discussing that I, I forget if we had this chat last time you were on so if we have let's just kind of rehash it but i'm always fascinated with your approach to covering a game from the sense of the preparation aspect of it where i know that you get your full schedule way in advance so you know which games you're doing in which cities at what time but kind of what goes into actually preparing for it like do you uh the, let's say you have two days off between games do you kind of try to have mm-hmm. discussions with players and coaches or people covering the team? Team, or would you look at certain trends to know what you're going to kind of focus on when you, when you're actually out on the ice rather than uh, totally freewheeling it? Like kind of what goes into that leading up to it?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, everyone's got their own unique way of doing it. I have obviously like a base template of preparation. I do for both teams that are in the game. So uh, mostly autobiographical, some some base statistical stuff just to kind of um, get, you know, reapprise yourself with who everyone is and where they're from and what they've done and, and, and whether they're playing well, whether they're hot, cold, whatever. Uh, and then the last, whatever, week or so before the game, um, depending on how many days you have off, you start, of course, watching the games that they're playing in their entirety, uh, you know, the previous one, two, three games before the one that they that you cover. Um, you start uh, paying more attention to reading the articles in the newspaper, uh, going on the web, hearing the sound, tuning into the radio, trying to get as much information Uh, about what the people involved on the team are thinking and saying about what's going on. Uh, You reach out to uh, coaches and players um, to touch bases, how they're feeling about what's going on. And then you, and then I dig into some of the numbers, um, checking out some of the different websites, both mainstream and and maybe more analytical based to see if you can pluck out something interesting that, you know, maybe it's just about one player. It's just about one guy. Maybe I'm doing Florida on Saturday. I want to, I want to highlight why Barkov's such a good player. You dig in and try to find stuff, stats, stories that would support what makes him so highly thought of and so effective. And so you do that, and it takes, well, obviously several, several hours for every game, and, and then you come up and try to condense it to thoughts and points and notes and graphics that can uh, that can be incorporated into a game. And then you start the game, and there are several games where absolutely none of that comes on the air because the right. game dictates that you don't have time, and other things happen, and the story I want about Barkoff being good in his own end doesn't play out because he's awful that night. Mm. So you just kind of park that one and save it for later. So um, yeah, so that that's kind of how you do it. Everyone's got their own way. You, you pick away and just try to add as much stuff um, to your preparation so that um, you're ready for anything, no matter how the game turns out. You're going to be able to do um, a thorough job.
1: Yeah. All right. I got a question here from a account for hockey who asks, can you talk about NHL coaches obsession about face offs? And, uh, I, <laughs> I, I <laughs> I'm looking, I, I, while you, while you were talking there, I was trying to quickly, uh, get ahead of the curve here and, and look at your, look up your face off stats. And, uh, for some reason, I can only find your, uh, your numbers from the 2007, 2008 season while you played for the Blues where you had, uh, you won two of eight face offs oh. in 21 games. So, uh, you probably don't have a great appreciation for face offs themselves, but why do NHL coaches?
0: Well, listen, let me say two of eight, I'm sure they're all taken shorthanded. So you got <laughs> to factor that in. You got not a good chance of winning them shorthanded. Right. I, was, I bet in my career, I was about a 43% face-off guy. Uh-huh. And I didn't take very many. I played wing almost my entire career. Mm-hmm. And I do have an appreciation for them. Probably more, I, I think, you know, people are beginning to understand that maybe face-offs are not quite as important as we once put them. Yes, there's a face-off with 10 seconds left in your own end. It's really important. Right. You get that. I mean, that's a really important moment. But, um, you know, a 52% faceoff guy in the neutral zone is not a game-changing thing because that's one second of play. It's really what you do the other 45 seconds of your shift that are probably more important than the one faceoff. But having said that, as a player, when I played, I played with a few great centermen on faceoffs, including um, Yannick Perrault, who might have been the best in the NHL. And I loved playing with that guy. I love playing with that guy because you didn't have to chase. You felt like you could start with the puck, and it saved your energy and saved your work to try to create goals as opposed to try to get the puck back. So I think players like it because it's easy possession, because trying to get possession back oftentimes requires work and and energy, and you want to save that for when you have it. I think the coaches like it, or or, as the question fixated on it, because it's a static, controlled event. And there are so few things in a game that the coaches can put their hands on and say, this is what we do. Every, it's like a football play. Everyone starts in the same spot. Everyone knows where they're supposed to go, whether you win or you lose. And I think that's why coaches put a lot of emphasis on it because it's something they control. Yep. Where you go, how you react, how it's played out is something that they um, can absolutely dictate where you go. And I think most coaches like to be in control. So that's probably why um, they put they put a lot of emphasis on it. and a bit of the old school mentality where, uh they they think it's really important to, to win that face off late in the game, to to gain gain possession of your own end, to get the clear on the penalty kill and all those things are important, but maybe just not quite as as maybe we one
1: stock. well it's also one of those things where it's really easy to latch onto and focus on if you lose uh, a face-off clean in your own zone for example and the puck winds up in your net five seconds later it's really easy like after the game for example yeah, if, you're, if you're running tape to be like hey man if we won this face-off here maybe uh we've got to got the puck out of the zone and, and not have been down one nothing right like that right
0: yeah it's an easy thing to point to for sure for sure but you would you know you wouldn't point to um, you know the the 25 things you could have done to get a goal back, or the other 25 things you could have done differently to, to score a goal, to, or not to prevent a goal that didn't come off the face off. Yeah, you're right. It's a it's a very clean and easy explanation for things that happen occasionally, not often, but occasionally. And and so it, and so you pay a lot of attention to it. And to be fair, the centermen absolutely care a lot about their face off numbers. They, they they the guys who are good at it, they pride themselves on being 52, 53%. Um, it matters to them. You see, you see the odd guy, like two seconds left in the, in the period. It's a neutral zone faceoff. Like two guys are digging in like game sevens on the line. And it's because they want to pad the stat. They know it's a stat that they are evaluated by, rightly or wrongly. And so they want to have good ones. So it matters to centermen as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I got a, I got a two part here for, uh, the first part is from, uh, stockyards, onion rings, who asks, have your thoughts on plus minus change? In re- <laughs> yeah, that's a good name. Have, have your thoughts on plus minus changed yeah. in recent years. And, and my follow up to that is, is sort of related to it where, uh, you said you're really into numbers and I, I'd, I'd imagine that appreciation has been rooted in you throughout your entire adult life. But at the same time, this sort of more analytical movement has happened after your playing career in the NHL was over so while you were playing like, were there certain numbers you were looking at and, and it's okay if you want to admit that you were a huge plus minus guy don't worry we won't, we won't make fun of you on the show it's okay
0: no it's okay that you do Okay, couple things one yes um, my feelings about plus minus have changed um, only because you know we have more information now that there are maybe better and different ways to evaluate your effectiveness as a 5 on 5 player beyond plus minus mm-hmm. back when I played um we, I, we, I wasn't aware of, of different ways. And, and so the, the most obvious way and uh, common way to do it was plus minus. So it did matter to me. Um, so go ahead and make fun of me. But I, and I always <laughs> thought, and I maintained this when I played. Um, hopefully I was smart enough to realize this, that plus minus um, the actual number is, is not really indicative of, of your ability um, five on five or your defensive acumen or any of those things it really is the relative number to your team mm-hmm. that shows whether or not you're an effective both offensively and defensive player five on five. Right. So, um, you know, I think my second last year I played in Montreal and I think I might've been like plus 10 and the rest of my team was minus 20. Mm. So that year I'm like, yeah, plus minus does matter. And I think it is reflective of the job that I did five on five, that I was better than many of my teammates who scored more points because they piled them off in the power play, but we're minus 20 players. So um, I think that it's, it's, it was important then, less important now. Um, but I still do think, um, say what you want about it, and I think you're right there, it's, it's not nearly as important. I think generally people accept that. Um, if you are significantly better or worse than the rest of your team, then I think plus minus is a stat that tells you something. Yeah, maybe not everything like we once thought it did, but it tells you something. If everyone on your team's a plus player and you're minus 19, it's telling you something. Yes, uh, and I'm sure you can find other possession numbers, analytical numbers that would also support the reasons why you're minus 19. But um, so yeah, it has changed. I think we don't use that um, that number in in the media or in our analysis nearly as much, and don't give it nearly as much weight um even the most staunch anti-analytical people um, preface their their plus minus comments with a well, believe what you want about plus minus but his plus minus is whatever they recognize that that it's not not what it once was so um it has changed since i stopped playing and you laugh about that the, the the numbers you know because back when I played that's all we had to go on yes they, yeah. they don't have all the advanced stats from when I played mm-hmm. they kind of started them in my last year only which was like my worst year of my career so I wish <laughs> I want to I want to know what I was like I want to know what my numbers would have been for my previous eleven years I wanted to know I would like to know I thought I was a good defensive player. I thought I was a good possession player. I thought I was a good five-on-five player. Mm. I'd like to know though. I don't know. I'm sure you can dig in the numbers and find that out. I, I bet my, you know, my shot suppression was good for a winger. I bet I, I bet I was good at that. But I don't know. I'd love to find out, but I don't know. And until they somebody goes back and rolls through all those game tapes, which I don't think is ever going to happen, uh, maybe I won't. But I wish I did.
1: Well, do do you think you're sort of in the minority there where you actually kind of care about that stuff because uh, just from my interactions with with former players a lot of them can kind of you know shrug it off and i mean uh, maybe if if the numbers painted them in a favorable light they'd like them but you know it, <laughs> yeah, it, right. if, if they're bad they'll be like oh well that that stuff's all garbage none of that matters but i'm kind of curious like it's tough to tell sometimes right because i've i've had discussions with people about patrick wall for example where he's the most vocal guy in terms of kind of dismissing course C- and and everything like that but from what i've heard it's sort of a you know he's putting up a brave face or he's sort of it's a little gamesmanship where of course he's he's not an idiot he's been around the game long enough where he knows that it's not good if his team keeps getting outshot by massive totals but it sort of is what it is and he's trying to maybe uh paint it in a different light or kind of or, or, or mix things up on people
0: yeah, he probably is, but you should ask him what he thinks of PDO when they made the playoffs. And Barley was yeah, a, best best, best a candidate, yeah. Yeah. I bet it was pretty good that year. Yeah. So I'm sure he was pretty well aware of it, and the reason why they made the playoffs in his first year coaching. What was what was that reason almost exclusively? So, uh, but yeah, of course, whether whatever you want to call the stat, if that stat is painting your team in a negative light and somewhat reflective of your job that you're doing coaching, then you're then anyone is going to be likely to. Uh, diminish the importance of of those numbers because they don't want to acknowledge that their team is not playing a sustainably successful way so Patrick Wahby no different than anybody else Uh, but I think you know what a lot of players former whether my generation or even before me um, yeah it's not something that they invest time understandably and understand and trying to figure out what it all means and and they don't really care, nor should they have to, especially if they don't work in yes. the hockey industry. Yeah, so, um, you know, they, they're just watching it as fans, like they were as players, and that makes sense to me. Uh, but more so, again, I'm not trying to validate my career as being any better or worse than I know that it was, because I, I have a pretty keen awareness of the of where I stood as a hockey player—not great, <laughs> not terrible, somewhere in the middle. Right. Um, and and whatever the number suggests, probably wouldn't change that. But more, cur- it's more, I'd be more curious because I. The whole essence to me of the analytics movement is do, do, there, do the numbers support or refute what you think you're seeing? Right. And if they support them, how do they support them? If they refute them, why? Why are the numbers inaccurate or why are what you're seeing is inaccurate? And I think that conversation is incredibly helpful in trying to understand what's going on in the ice. Why do I think this guy's really good when the numbers suggest he's not? Or why do I think this guy is no good when the numbers suggest he are? And then you you dig deeper to understand by using your eyes and numbers to figure out what's going on. I think that really is the the beauty and the value in in analytics. It's not everything. It's not nothing. It's somewhere in the middle. I'd like to see if what I perceive myself as as a player would have been matched up by the numbers. And if they weren't, I wonder why not. But Mm. I don't think I'll ever have that opportunity. (laughs)
1: Uh, All right, Mike. Thanks for taking the time to chat, man. That was a lot of fun. Um, What what games are you doing coming up here?
0: You know what? I got uh, down well down the stretch a few more Canadian games. So that's uh, I got Florida and Montreal. I'm fascinated to watch this because I don't I don't follow Florida as closely as some of the other teams in the league. Mm. I have not seen them play live once. Um, You know, I I didn't know how good they were going to be beyond. Kind of that first line and first pair, but I, I want to watch them. I want to see if they look like they are a threat. East, I don't know probably well enough to say one way or the other right now. So I have them against the Canadians down in Florida this weekend. Uh, I have a Barn Barnburner Columbus in Toronto on Wednesday.
1: Oh, yeah, and Austin then Matthew's uh, ball.
0: That's that's <laughs> really and Columbus making a strong push <laughs> once again yes. to get back into it. Yeah, and uh, and then one more game the following Saturday, Saturday in New Jersey to finish off before we get to the real fun which will be the playoffs. And those are always the best time of the year to do my job.
1: So are, are you in the playoffs? Like, let's say in the first round, are you going to be just doing one series or are you going to be kind of bouncing around and doing different games?
0: Uh, I don't know for sure. Um, you know, certainly last year it was different with all the Canadian teams that made it right. uh, working for, for and Rogers. Um, uh, I, so I don't know for sure. Um, if I had to guess, I'd probably say we would probably primarily be doing just the one series. Uh, but if that series were to end early in four or five games, then you might bounce out for six or seven in a different one. But your um, your number one focus will be one series, and I don't think we'll be doing too much else besides the the one that we're doing in the first round. Cool. But I could be wrong. Yeah. I've been wrong many times before.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, when you know which series you're doing, let's uh, let's get you back on, and we'll kind of after you've done your prep for it, we'll uh, we'll dive into it.
0: Yeah, that'd be fun. Sounds good.
1: Cool, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. The Hockey P.D.O. Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim dimfilipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/hockeypdocast.